This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, the first of our summer series, a special feature on low back pain. Back pain is one of the most disabling conditions in terms of cost, lifestyle and work constraints. But the health system's response, the evidence is showing, is skewed. Expensive and potentially risky treatments such as surgery and cortisone injections are overused and cheap and effective care is underused when there are new ways of thinking about dealing with back pain more safely. It's about movement and retraining the brain, as Anne Arnold reports. Those squeals you hear belong to an otherwise sensible physiotherapist who's being attacked by killer robots in a park beside the North Wollongong Surf Club. Help us! When they fly at you, that's so real. Deirdre McGee is playing a virtual reality game. She's meant to be shooting the robots. It seems she's losing. Robots are flying at you. Yeah, they like hit you in the face. The robots come you at you. You need to pick up more guns. So drop those ones and pick up the next ones. Yep, and the left one? Good, well done. Deidre's holding two remote control devices and pressing their buttons. But in her virtual world, she thinks she's holding guns and pulling triggers. I can see my hand, but it's not in my body. She's getting a glimpse of how the mind can be manipulated to change perceptions of the body and therefore, potentially, of pain. It was part of a pain revolution tour of regional New South Wales. A bunch of researchers and clinicians educating the public and local health professionals about new approaches to pain. Cutting-edge brain research is just one of the options that might help deal with the perennial problem of lower back pain. What drove this series of papers in The Lancet was primarily the fact that low back pain doesn't seem to get the attention of a lot of other conditions, um, but we know it's actually the number one cause of disability around the world. Associate Professor Mark Hancock was one of 30 international authors of a major Lancet series on lower back pain, published recently. We had a feeling from some of the literature that had been published that a lot of people were receiving the wrong types of treatments, the treatments that aren't recommended in guidelines, and that's very much one of the strong findings from the series of papers. Australia fits a pattern the researchers found throughout the developed world. The best examples of treatments that seem to be being used excessively um, and are potentially dangerous include things like spinal surgery, particularly complex fusion surgeries, spinal injections, and also the use of opioids. So these all carry quite significant risks of harm. And again, there's not strong evidence of these being highly effective interventions. Not for any forms of lower back pain? That's a great question. For some forms of back pain, they are appropriate in very limited cases, though. And at the moment, they're being very, very widely used. Exceptions that might require major interventions include fractures and tumours. But in Australia, for non-cancer back pain, spinal fusion surgeries rocketed up by nearly 170% in the nine years to 2006, according to a study published in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Surgery. In the study, the operations were almost entirely in the private sector, and the authors suggested the rise was attributable, in part, to over-servicing. You can never consider surgery as your best option. It is never your best option because an intact spine is always better than a surgically altered spine. 
My name is Katherine Jacobson Raymond, and I am the author of Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery, which was published by HarperCollins in May of 2017. The very title itself, The Back Industry, why is it an industry? Well, you know, I didn't think it was an industry when I got started on this, and I got started on it as a patient because I had been dealing with back pain since the time I was about 16 years old. And by the time I finished my first book, I was in so much agony that I could not envision how I would write a second one without really taking serious steps. So as I went through that process, and it took a while, I started to realize that so much of what I was seeing and hearing, there was no good scientific evidence base for. It was an industry because it existed to make money. Catherine Raymond found herself on the back pain treadmill. The first time that I sat myself down in a surgeon's office, I looked around and I noticed that there were people all over the reception area. Every chair was full. There were people leaning against walls. There were people sitting on the floor. And so I really recognized that money was being made here big time. Uh, and that was just the beginning. I started to look at what was being done in terms of interventional pain management, i.e. injections. And those are given widely in the U.S., injections of cortisone. And there was no evidence base for that. And then I started looking at spinal fusion and same thing. Then I started looking at something that I notice is getting rather hot in Australia currently, which is total disc replacement. And there was absolutely no evidence base. And there were a lot of issues in terms of how these devices had been passed by the Food and Drug Administration. There was a lot of crooked activity, in fact. Back to those ubiquitous cortisone injections, well, the Australian picture is not much different to the US. Mark Hancock. The rate of spinal injections has gone up astronomically over the last 10 or 20 years, and there's been a lot of controversy about this. We and other people around the world have looked at this, and the consensus seems to be that spinal injections have very, very small effects that are probably not on average, useful or important effects that patients would notice. So again, we're recommending these not being standard treatments and being used maybe in very select cases. But the problem is that they're just becoming very standard and very common. The rates have doubled or tripled over fairly short periods of time. At Sydney's convention centre in Darling Harbour, a group of 25 doctors and other clinicians are gathering outside a pain conference. They're decked out in lycra, black with fluoro polka dots, and are about to cycle to Wollongong. I'm Dr Karen Jones. I'm a pain physician from Melbourne. And I'm doing this ride because I grew up in the country and we're going to stop in lots of country towns and do pain education for GPs and patients along the way. And that's what I think really makes a difference for people with pain is to understand what's going on. Each of these cyclists, nurses and physiotherapists among them, has had to fundraise $3,000 to cover the costs of their ride, from Sydney to Albury, via Wollongong, Canberra and other stops. They're also funding the training of a local pain educator in each location. 
My name's Simon Macklin. I'm an anaesthetist in Adelaide. So the pain revolution is about empowering local communities to provide that psychological support. Physical, psychological, physiotherapy, they need to continue functioning in their local communities. I'm Anne Arnold and this is The Health Report with a special feature on lower back pain. At Wollongong, the first stop for the cyclists, the Brain Bus, which is also on the tour, has already set up in a park next to the beach. The Brain Bus is manned by researchers demonstrating new developments in brain science. It's the Neuroplasticity Roadshow. And that's where local physio Deirdre McGee is having her monster robot encounter. Um, so Deirdre is going to experience some virtual reality. This is something that tells us a bit about how the brain constructs reality from visual information. OK, let's get in and do it. Deirdre is wearing a head-mounted display, a screen inside what looks like a snorkelling mask. I'm Dr Daniel Harvey from Bond University of the Gold Coast. And what do you research, Daniel? Well, generally speaking, the role of the brain in chronic pain, and I use virtual reality as one of my tools for that. Uh, I'm also interested in sensory training. Well done. Dying. Saving oh, yeah. the world from killer robots. I don't oh. have a gun in this yeah, hand. You've got I just reach had down and get it. That's it. <laughs> Open your hand and then close it on the gun. It's actually quite remarkable that you can put a screen in front of someone, a virtual reality screen, and really transport them to an alternate reality. And there's potential to apply this to the experience of pain. There may be some potential use of virtual reality in pain treatment. But for the purpose of today, it's really about giving people an experience of altered sensory perception to sort of challenge our normal thoughts about how the brain works and how our feelings of the body work. Because you guys believe that it's wide open, that we really need to explore different ways of managing our thinking and therefore, hopefully, our pain. Yeah, we do. I, th I think for too long we've focused too strictly on what's happening in the body. And in doing that, we've ignored a lot of other potential contributors that could be helping people who have ongoing pain problems. Yeah. Okay, oh, yeah, I've got both guns. Robots. Okay, you got the hang of it? Yep. What did you think of that? Well, I'd um, never played a computer game. Along on the tour is journalist Catherine Raymond, the author of Crooked, the book about the back pain industry. She's come from San Francisco to learn more about Australia's world-leading research work on the brain and pain. Here, not attached to my body. You, yes. you figured it out. Your brain was quite quick yeah. at working out the problem, right? Yeah. yeah. And it did really feel like I was somewhere else. Catherine Raymond is writing about the brain and pain research for the international science magazine, Discover. Is there anything that you think you have learned here so far that you might convey to a patient, or is it too soon to say on no, that? No, no, definitely the picture of the mountains and the pain buffer is a great analogy to show patients to help them understand. The picture shows an activity mountain. At the peak of the mountain is the injury. Below it is a large chunk of mountain that's the protective pain zone. It's often unnecessarily big, and it's something the brain creates, influenced by fear and other factors. The theory is that you can exercise within that pain buffer. 
the pain is not necessarily an indicator that further damage will result. Do you find that it's counterintuitive for most patients that if they're in pain that they should move? I think they think that if it hurts when they move, that they think it's counterintuitive. So I think there's a lot of fear involved. So to have that analogy of, of showing them that there's a gap between tissue damage and sensation of pain, I think it's a really good analogy to help patients to understand how their brain works. It's true because for so long patients have been told that if it hurts, don't do it. I mean, every trainer, every physiotherapist, you know, stop immediately. Let me know if it hurts. Well, the issue with back pain, which is what I typically write about, is that it hurts. It all hurts. Everything hurts, including sitting down at the table and standing back up. It hurts. So you are going to have to deal with it, right? We absolutely need the clinicians that are looking after people with back pain to rethink about how they're managing back pain. Associate Professor Mark Hancock, who's a physio by background and a lower back pain specialist at Macquarie University. But there's really strong evidence that a lot of clinicians aren't following the recommendations. Is this GPs? It's GPs, physios and chiropractors and arguably anybody that's treating low back pain. Because all the evidence is about, instead of going into the sickness system in a sense, it's about moving and moving away from the pain. Absolutely. So the recommendations for early management of back pain are largely about self-management and really encouraging people to stay active, which goes against a lot of people's intuition. In the past, there was a strong belief that when people had back pain, the most appropriate thing to do was rest. Unfortunately, it's still widely recommended as a treatment, despite every international guideline now clearly recommending against bed rest and clearly recommending that actually staying active within sensible limits is the best thing you can do with an acute episode of back pain. Here's the deal. Moving is your best option. How you're going to move, that's going to depend very much on your preferences. That raises the question of how do you know if the person that you're seeing, and you went to a whole raft as a reporting exercise, didn't you? You went went to sports scientists, you tried Feldenkrais, you did structural integration, Alexander technique, et cetera, et cetera. So how is a consumer to assess not only the techniques but also the individual practitioners because that can vary a lot? Right. Well, it can be challenging. Um, There's a lot of smoke and mirrors. There are a lot of people claiming to be things they aren't. The evidence is largely that most of these forms of exercise are reasonably effective for back pain. But things like Pilates, um, there definitely is evidence from a Cochrane review that Pilates is effective, maybe marginally more effective than some other types of exercise, but at the moment we don't have good enough evidence for that. Now, good clinicians, despite that lack of evidence, will still try to give people the most appropriate form of exercise for them. So if one person, for example, is clearly very weak in the muscles around their spine, then it makes sense that the exercise would be more focused around strength. If actually they've got problems with how they move and the coordination or timing of their movement, then they need quite different type of exercise. But for some, any movement seems impossible. People who haven't moved for years and years, people who are afraid of moving, they can't just be told that if they stop their guarding and fear-avoidant behaviour, they'll be fine. It's entrenched. And that's where the mind comes in. It's about understanding the complexity of pain. 
The hall at the North Wollongong Surf Club is fast filling up. They've come for a pain revolution forum. This one's for the general public and later there'll be another one for health professionals. Both are sold out. Okay. <clears throat> you and I hurt when our brains weigh the world, weigh everything going on, and judge that there's more danger out there than safety. David Butler himself may well be hurting. He's just cycled 90 kilometres from Sydney with the other health practitioners and researchers. Some have collapsed in their motel rooms. The cycling is a symbolic gesture about movement and pushing through pain. Equally, we will not hurt when our brains weigh the world and judge that there's more safety out there than danger. Now, that's a bloody hard definition to take on, but it's a target concept which will open doors for you. David Butler, one of the tour organisers, is a physiotherapist and an adjunct associate professor at the University of South Australia. He's the director of the Neuroorthopaedic Institute, an Adelaide-based business which organises about 200 seminars around the world every year. David Butler is a showman, resplendent in green spectacles. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of examples here. I'd like you to yell out if you think it's dangerous or if it's safe. You ready? Your doctor reassures you, you're not alone, there's hope. Safe? Yeah, excellent. Uh, interest rates on your mortgage go up. Danger. Danger. You didn't know that had an effect on your pain, did you? But now you really do. The point is, pain has context. Because the brain is influenced by many things. All right. Your partner says yes to joining your yoga class. <laughs> you, in turn, can influence your brain, and that includes seeing your pain more positively. You've gone over on your ankle, it's swelling up fast. Oh, but look at your ankle swelling up fast. You've started the healing already. There's beautiful stuff in that lovely swollen ankle. Let's make sure it's not really damaged badly. If it is, we'll send you somewhere else. But wow, you're healing already. Well done, you old self-healers. Think of that next time you sprain something. And, says David Butler, watch your language. Things you say repel the invader. Are you saying it's like a knife in there, it's like a knife in there and you've said it a million times, there's something burning inside there, there's something degenerated inside there? The hints of language, that has an effect on brain change. Can you change it, soften it? Can you, your therapist, help you with different language? Just know your strategy. Active, better than passive. Pain is a defender, not an offender. All right? That's a really, really critical thing. But can we start the thinking that, hang on, this is a protector. It's a protector. I can be sore but safe. I can move with some pain. It's a big societal shift. It'll take us a while, but this is part of the revolution. The leader of the pain revolution movement, as many on this tour refer to it, is Professor Lorimer Mosley. Pain is an unpleasant feeling in your body that compels you to take protective action, to protect that body part. Lorimer Mosley is Professor of Clinical Neurosciences and Chair in Physiotherapy at the University of South Australia. He's talking at the Wollongong Clinicians Forum, which followed the public forum. And if we can appreciate that pain is a protective feeling, and if we can communicate that to people, <coughs> we change the game. If people can understand that pain is a protective feeling that is urging behaviour, it's a game changer it requires a substantial reset. We use, modern pain scientists use this language of the brain producing pain. 
And I think this should penetrate our language clinically. The brain makes pain, the brain produces pain. The brain doesn't detect pain. The brain doesn't interpret something out there as pain. The brain makes it. If you hear someone say pain detector or pain receptor or a pain pathway, it's nonsense. There's no such thing as a pain receptor. In lab studies, the relationship between the noxious stimulus and pain is, is variable. It's not just a bit of variability, it's massive variability. And this is in a highly controlled laboratory with one researcher in the room. The relationship between the message from the tissues and what the brain does is highly variable then. How much more highly variable is it going to be in the real world? One of those variabilities, an important one, is how a clinician responds to a patient. The way you guys look at your patients could send a danger message, could send a safety message. The way you look at their x-ray or their scan in front of them, where you look up and you go, ooh. <laughs> ever done that? Surgeons have ever done what yours was the worst, worst back I've ever seen. <laughs> The next patient comes in, yours was the worst back I've ever seen. Ah, back imaging. It's another thing we're getting wrong. It's quite logical that people would expect we can look on an image or on a scan and see the problem and then there should be a logical treatment to that. But not so. One of the findings of Mark Hancock and colleagues in the Lancet Back Pain series was the widespread overuse of imaging, which leads in turn to cortisone injections or surgery, neither of which have strong evidence in most cases. Could you explain why it is that looking at an image of what appears to be some damage or a problem within the back, and it might be a bone apparently pressing on a nerve, doesn't actually explain why you're getting back pain? There's a range of reasons why what we see on a scan may not explain an individual's person's pain. We have really good evidence that a lot of these changes are just a normal part of ageing. So around about 90% of people, by the time they get to 80, have these signs of degeneration, maybe disbulges, these types of things on their scans. So we know that they're actually relatively normal part of ageing. The other reason is that pain is just really complex and we know pain is influenced by our brain, our interpretation of the threat associated with what we feel and many other things going on. But so something not sitting perfectly within the spine doesn't necessarily cause pain either? Absolutely. There's no doubt you can see really quite substantial changes in the spine in people that have never had pain at any point in their life. Mark Hancock is not part of the pain revolution group. He welcomes with some caution the new brain science. The recent increase in understanding of the brain in our experience of pain is really, really helpful and really important work that all clinicians need to understand. I do, however, think there's a risk of going too far down that pathway and, I guess, ignoring the local factors that contribute to people's pain. So I strongly believe in an approach that encompasses all of these and we definitely need research to investigate this more and to better understand both elements. We still don't know enough about the local factors that contribute. And when I say local, I mean in your back, um, that contribute to people's experience of pain. It's different strokes for different folks. It's pretty clear in my mind that for some patients, 
most of their problem is driven from factors in their back. And for other patients, the role of the brain is really important. And again, to be clear, that's not people imagining the pain. That's just lots of things going on in their brain, changes, physiological changes in the brain that actually influence the amount of pain that people experience. Don't you leave, don't you dare leave this saying that we think it's all in your head. No, no, no. This pain's in your body, in your life, right? Get yourself checked out and get the bits fixed that need to be fixed, if they do, if they do. And there's a lot of other things to consider. Go out, the spice of life, plan a meal, a market trip, and go out into the market and smell three different things, and taste three different things, and touch three different things, because that creativity provides new pathways, new growth in the brain. It's powerful. I was going through this in Victoria last year, just outside of Geelong. And I was looking for examples from the group and someone yelled out, orgasm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The front row here could be on for a party. (laughs) Yeah. The cyclists and the brain bus would push on for another seven days, giving presentations each night in a new town or city. And journalist Catherine Raymond... Her back is holding up pretty well these days. Well, at this point, I think I can say that I'm pretty well perfectly fine because I've just been traveling for two weeks in Australia and two weeks in New Zealand, and I have been managing duffel bags and suitcases, hiking up mountains, kayaking across lakes, fording rivers and managing the streets of Sydney. That might be the most dangerous part because I tend to look the wrong way when I'm crossing the street. (laughs) And I would say that I do not have a back problem at this point. What I did discover was, first of all, I had a very weak upper body. I really did not have enough muscle to support my own spine. And I had a lot of fear And fear was really taking its toll. I had had enough pain that I was very afraid to do anything that I thought could cause more. But yours was the classic non-specific lower back pain, was it? No, I had a lot of leg pain as well. I had a lot of nerve pain. I had such a numb foot that I had issues with driving for a while. Was sciatica a diagnosis? Well, sciatica is always a diagnosis, but it's usually the wrong diagnosis because it can mean any number of things. Sciatica means a compressed sciatic nerve. Frequently, what's going on has absolutely nothing to do with a sciatic nerve. What I realized is what I had primarily was gluteal amnesia. My butt had fallen asleep. (laughs) And once I began to do the exercises that recruited those muscles and recruited all of the pelvic muscles, Things got better, and they got better fast. Catherine Raymond. To reflect what's now known about good back care in Australia, Associate Professor Mark Hancock is calling for legislative and funding changes. At the moment, many of the treatments that we're talking about as being ineffective and potentially harmful are covered and funded by health organisations, and that's problematic, and the reality is that drives poor care. Are you saying that it would be a more efficient use of the health dollar if the government subsidised a year's worth of Pilates classes, for example, or physiotherapy visits or both, rather than an injection or surgery? 
Absolutely. To move funding to those interventions which are generally cheaper and safer and more effective, importantly, rather than very complex, expensive interventions is clearly going to be better for the health budget, but it's also going to be better for patients. So there's some really difficult and brave decisions that need to be made about what should be funded and what shouldn't be funded. And Arnold with that special feature. Thanks also to producer James Bullen and sound engineer Hamish Camilleri. I hope you can join me next time here on The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.